In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart App is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. A couple of weeks ago, we were at the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. I was joined by Megan Mullally and Nick Offerman. Mullally is best known for her role as Karen Walker on Will and Grace. Offerman's big break was playing the role of Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation. But they also have a life together off-screen. They have been married since 2003. And as Playboy magazine wrote a couple of years ago, their comic chemistry is akin to that of a hypersexualized Jerry Stiller and Anne Mira. Thank you both for coming. Thanks for having us. Let me begin by asking that uh, uh, the two of you, I'm going to start with Nick because we've got to uh, go one at a time here, and that is that uh, what was the comedy DNA in your family when you were growing up? Did you come from a family of like rip-snorting comedy people? I, w- I wouldn't say rip-snorting, but there is a, a powerful sense of humor in my family. There is. They're hardworking and humble. They're farmers and school teachers and nurses and librarians. Sorry. Uh, it's, and... Um, and so there, there's a real, I think it's the, the farmer ethos where you have to work, you, you can't be too funny or too dramatic. You just keep working, but, you know, all of your year's work might be wiped out by locusts or storms, so you have to have a dry sense of humor of like, well, I, I guess we're eating our shoes this year. And I, I picked up on that. And were you the funny one in your family? Well... That might be over-egging the pudding, but I, uh, I was definitely the showman. <laughs> the performer. Yeah. I, you mentioned in an interview where you said, like, your hardworking, kind of tough, no-nonsense family, they viewed you as, like, the wuss of the family because yes, you're in show business? I'm the sissy of the family. The sissy of the when family. When I walk in the door, it, it says, the, I'm, I'm the Milo uh, of my family, yeah. perhaps. Uh-huh. And you, you... Now, you were born in L.A., mm-hmm. but you grew up in Oklahoma. Yeah, how did that happen? <laughs> how did that happen? Well, I, uh, uh, my father was a contract player with Paramount in the 50s, and so they lived in Los Angeles for a long time, and I was born here, and then, when, uh, and then they moved back to Oklahoma when I was six, and uh, I had a little bag packed by the door that whole time I was in Oklahoma, <laughs> just waiting to come back to Los Angeles, although I had a great upbringing, but I just, I knew better. Now, did he feel like he didn't want to, ra- <laughs> did he feel like he didn't want to raise his kids in LA? That's why you went back to Oklahoma to have a... Uh, yeah, his parents had lived in Newport Beach and they both passed away in the same year and he just didn't want to be here anymore and he was very bitter about the entertainment industry. Right. And he had grown up in Oklahoma City, and my mom had grown up in Tulsa, so he just wanted to get back there. But can you imagine that, being bitter about the entertainment industry? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know what that's like. Yeah, I think he wanted to be the big fish, you know, in a little She pond. wanted to make it. He really wanted to make it, but he, he was that really busy he drinking alcohol, so it oh, really see. cut into oh, the acting time, yeah. He was very busy drinking alcohol and having sex with women who weren't my mother, so it really took a bite out of the... Some people are able to juggle those pursuits. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's true. <laughs> but he was it's more true. of a specialist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So did he... <laughs> 
Did he act in Oklahoma? Did he revive his career? Did he become like the, he did the so. Tony Randall of Oklahoma, regaling mm. people with his theatrical he, troupe? My, my father was, he wore an ascot and at one point had a, yeah, in Oklahoma City in like this early 60s and had at one point bought a, a, Fant, a Rolls Royce Phantom Three uh, gray, you know, what you know extravaganza and he would drive that around town in an ascot so the fact that he was not was he drunk on his way to bang a lot of women what was that he just had a very he he was like a gay guy you know he just had like a very fantastical presentation i'm glad you said that yeah yeah my parents had a lot i learned to sing because my parents had a lot of barbara streisand and judy garland records and i was like were my parents two gay men what What's happening? <laughs> now, but did he, did he perform in like I read that he performed he did, the dinner theater there. He was kind of the only person that I knew growing up who had this really, you know, kind of um, t- meta sense of humor. Right. And he was funny. so I, yeah, he he could crack my mom and I up for sure. But we were also scared of him. Right. <laughs> so it was a good combo. Right. Now, do your families, are your parents both alive at all or no? My mom is alive. My mom's 95, yeah. She's, she's still... Where is she? She's in Oklahoma City in the same house that I grew up in. Did she get the rolls? She, no, that had to be sold, I think. But uh, yeah, my, my dad never really had like a real job, but he had money from... The family had some oil money from way back when, so he kind of drifted along on that, but Did the you, roles was temporary. Was your dad around to meet him? Do they know each other? No. no. Unfortunately, no. my dad passed away in 1992. But I, I, it's totally, completely different as he and Nick are. I do think that there's some crossover, because we're well, both gay. Um, <laughs> there's that. And <laughs> Wait, can, can they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tonight's the I don't night. Know, don't it's know coming out. Can I, can I mention? Mean, my dear. Can I, can I, speaking of gay, <laughs> can I mention what you said backstage? Backstage, Megan was staring at my balls when I was sitting down. Yes. Can you see the He's hole? Do you see the hole in my pants? Hole in his pants. I split my pants. Can you see? Okay, I'm gonna like, put the what? paper here. Alec Baldwin. I'm gonna put my notes here. I'll read the my notes. The trouser hasn't has... been invented that will contain the testicles of Alec Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> They will not be For, reined in. They will not be reined <laughs> yeah. in. Now, so there was no chance. In, Nick has taken a, a rather festive handkerchief out of his pocket and uh, wrapped it around <laughs> his neck in the form of an ascot. So it's more of a cravat. So the Offermans. <laughs> so the Offermans and the and the uh, uh, and the Malalis never met. I mean, where you got, got the two families got together. Well, I mean, that would have been an interesting thing. Yeah, Megan's mom came to Manuka, and the families have visited uh, each other, uh, and and Megan's mom had a wonderful gentleman companion, Mr. Nat Smith, and they, we traveled all over together with them, and so they came to our little town of Manuka for holiday dinners, and then we came to Oklahoma as well. Now, Manuka, Manuka? Manuka. Manuka, so I'm going to assume that uh, Manuka... People even come in there from uh, Oklahoma City. I mean, Oklahoma City is Paris compared to Manuka, I'm assuming. And so, they never even went. Chicago's less than an hour away, and they never even went. It was like going to Morocco or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like we were in Mayberry. Um, yeah. When I finally got to Chicago, I felt like I had traveled from the 50s to present day. You, you went to Champaign-Urbana? I did. Uh, uh, to I'm, study what? I'm a proud fighting Illini to study theater. To they, theater. Yeah, they have actually a, a quite reputable theater conservatory. And that's what you wanted from when you were, when you were young? You knew you wanted to study acting? I was really ignorant. I, I knew that I wanted to perform, and I only as about a junior in high school, I found out that you could get paid to do plays in Chicago. Like, I had heard of Broadway, and I'd, I had heard of London, but I certainly d- didn't think I could get there uh, yeah. from Manuka. 
I, I was ignorant. I didn't do the math that, that you watch. You know, my dad and I loved watching Jackie Gleason and, yeah. and John Wayne movies. And I, I never did the math of uh, impersonating like, oh, I can learn to talk like Reverend Jim Ignatowski on Taxi. And then somebody will give me, a, you know, uh, instead I just was like, hey, you guys. Uh, <laughs> I love I'm a know, wild you, and you crazy did, guy. Have a breakdancing team with his cousin Ryan. Whatever and it takes. They were Whatever it tick takes. tock and flip flop. <laughs> flip flop was Ryan because he did the gymnastics, and the the pop and locker here was tick tock. That's right. <laughs> fucking crazy. Guilty. So you realize you wanted to? <laughs> we did plays at my high school, and you just plays in high school. Yeah, there were, I did. A How many people were in your high school? Like eleven people total. Or what, no, how did there that were, go? About 800. Like you did Godot and nine other people were in the audience? That's or what'd right. you do? We did, um, we did, you know, the crappy plays that high schools do. Uh, we also did musicals. And so it was a revelation to discover that you could perform theater professionally in sh as close as Chicago. And that the, these kids were studying the, to do this at the University of Illinois. Right. And I, so I, I, that was my first audition. And it was... I didn't even know what a monologue was. Like, for one of my monologues, I performed a scene of dialogue. <laughs> you played both parts? Yeah. Listen here, Louis. What? What? Exactly. You're, like, doing both parts. I did. What scene was that? What scene did you do both parts it was, from? It was a scene from the play uh, Steam Bath. <laughs> ah. So gay, once Rick, again. Rick. <laughs> <laughs> scene from the play Glory Hole. <laughs> and the, yeah, the professors were. You could have done Boys in the Band and played all the parts from Boys in the Band. Could have, but they. I, you know, I, I honestly think um, they took uh, uh, sixteen students a year in this conservatory, and I. Th you know, I was very athletic, and I think that you know they do a lot of Shakespeare and big Chekhov plays, and so you need a couple guys to like carry the the coffin. Or the carry the samovar on stage. He was an altar boy, also. I was. Uh, no, wait. What sport did you play? It was Central Illinois, so <laughs> basketball, f baseball, and football. But football was my best sport. Who did you play? What position? Uh, defensive back, uh, either cornerback or what they called monster back. <laughs> I was good at, at tackling yeah. people. Um, but it, it hurting was, people. It was a little weird, but I had um, I don't know uh, I, I had the respect of the team, so they they kind of thought I was fruity, but I, I think I was tough enough at sports that they were like, eh, yeah, you removed he all si doubt on Saturday afternoons. Yeah. I was yeah. in the swing choir. Yeah, you were gay you until were the funny. kickoff. <laughs> Were you a superstar athlete there in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City? Oh, uh, no. Yeah. Um, I well, was in a ballet company, yeah. though. Ballet. I was a serious ballet dancer for many years, and I was in a company for five years and studied at New York City Ballet's school, School of American Ballet. Um, but, no, I, on the other hand, basically came out of the womb in a top hat and tap shoes. Yes. <laughs> I was developing my skills. <laughs> From birth, yeah. I had talent. I was, I was literally like in my room trying to perfect every possible performing skill imaginable from the age of four. Um, yeah, I don't know why. It's, I think it's weird that those kind of things happen. I think that ki when kids have a certain predilection for a, a, a career, I mean, I know so many people who, who had that. Yeah, when I was a kid, we would always torment my mother because, like, when I was little, you know, that programming on TV was like old Warner Brothers gangster films or like the Bowery Boys. I don't know if people here remember the Bowery Boys. Like, my whole childhood, we just like shoveled that on my mother all the time. She'd be like, Are you boys going to finish those potatoes? And we're like, We're not going to eat the potatoes, see? Who's asking, see? We're not eating no damn potatoes. Get out of here, see? And my mother would be like, Oh, God, oh, God. What did you watch? I liked the weird stuff like Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. That's right, and I watched that too. Yeah, that, the fact that they even aired that in Oklahoma City kind of blows my mind when I think about did it. Did you smoke pot and watch Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman? I was, it was, I was too young, but I had. No, I, you weren't. 
Don't bullshit us. Yeah, no, when it first started, I was. I didn't ever smoke pot till I was 17, I don't think. I, I watched Mary Harbin, Mary Harbin. I used to blow a big fat one out the window before Mary Harbin was on. <laughs> I love that show. My mom, my mom used to watch it with me. She totally got it. My mom encouraged me in a lot of ways, and I, I knew every song on the radio and all that kind of stuff. And my mom always, you know, she gave me ballet lessons and encouraged me to be creative. Did you smoke a lot of weed there in Manuka? No, in fact, no. Uh, no, it was very conservative, and the uh, like the six known pot smokers were com- completely alienated. Like they, th- this this was the '80s, and they like they announced their devotion to to marijuana with long hair and like rat concert T-shirts. It wasn't even something you considered. Like uh, there was such a taint on it. And then I got to theater school. <laughs> and, and my best friend, Joe, it took him, at the time, uh, there's a long side tangent, I was pretending to be a born-again Christian so that I could sleep with this particular young lady. And so I had to kind of work out of that uh, so to save face. They would... He, they would. They were. He was. They were both born again, supposedly. And then he would like get her to like have sex with them. And then they would both cry and like get down on their knees and repent and ask for <laughs> forgiveness. And then the same thing the next night, and just on and on every single night, every night. Born again. Yeah. She was born again <laughs> and again and again. Born. Highly recommended. And when did you decide you were going to go to, to become like a pro? You go to college, and what happened when you're done with college? Well, there was a group of us, uh, you know, and I, I was really bad at acting. Like, it, I, I was so ignorant um, that I was trying way too hard, in a, in a nutshell, was my problem. And, uh, and so all through college, I wasn't really getting cast, but I endeared myself to this group of, of great artists because I could build scenery and I could choreograph sword fights. Uh, I became a... A, a big sword fighter, and um, and so we formed a theater company called the Defiant Theater, and moved on Moss to Chicago. What's up? Uh, that was kind of the thing. Was like, let's make a go of it in Chicago, which is probably the greatest theater city in the country. Yeah, um, yeah. very good. For, for that reason, it's uh, you can you you can make a go of it with a storefront theater in a more affordable way, and your audience, there, there's no ulterior motive. There's no Broadway, there, there's no TV business. It's, if you're doing Beckett in Chicago, it's because you really want to do theater. Now, why do you think that is to explain to people who don't know, and count me among them, why is uh, uh, Chicago such a fertile ground for theater? I don't know. I think it's a combination of not being, uh, you know, New York and L.A., are places where if you if you have a scrap like douchebags talent, yeah. is that what you want to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah they're, they're full of douchebags. If you if you have just a spark of talent or cuteness in those cities, people are like, hey, we can we can make a lot of money with you quickly. In Chicago, you don't have that that ulterior motive. Like the top paid theater performers there are not doing that great. So it's it's not it's for passion and love. Yeah, you're not chasing fame and fortune, and you also just have that Midwestern work ethic. Um, Chicago theater is a lot closer to farming than the, the coastal I, efforts. I did a lot of theater in Chicago also, but before Nick, and um, because I'm older. She went to Northwestern. Yeah, I right. went to Northwestern. Is, is and then I did theater there for like six years, and um, that's where I learned everything, because I didn't study acting at Northwestern. So What did you study? Um, mostly English and art history, and um, but I did a lot of theater while I was in school. It was right when Steppenwolf was really hitting. Sure. I got cast in a professional show while I was still in school at Northwestern. And um, I was just starting my junior year. And I, I had gone back to school for two weeks. And I was doing eight shows a week, at, uh, you know. And um, I went in to talk to the dean. And I said, this is really hard. And she said, drop out. I said, all right, don't mind if I do. And so I did. And uh, then I got some calls when I was doing Chicago theater. For some reason, I 
I tested for the lead in risky business. Spoiler alert, I didn't get it. Uh, but I was flown out here for two weeks. It was a really big deal and for me at the time. And uh, then I had a lot of agents, like, you know, big agents, Hollywood agents, calling me in my little apartment in Chicago. And I was flown out for like two or three other movies. Didn't get them. And then I moved out here finally in 1986. Six? Yeah, five, six. I don't know. And so I already, so I had an agent right away, so it made it easier. I always was able to support, I was very lucky, I was always able to support myself. I never had, you know, a civvy job, you know, which is kind of bad and kind of good. What's the first thing you did that really clicked for you, where you really started to get you on that path where you know you're going to work. I mean, I remember exactly, I did this movie called She's Having a Baby with Kevin Bacon years ago. No, no, please. But I just mentioned it because there were these two women who were the casting agents, and once I got cast in that movie and I was on their radar, everything changed after that. You know? Well, I was they lucky. Were my I worked, you know, I was able to work here and there, and I got a pilot. Most pilot seasons, I got a pilot, or I, you know, do episodic. But I never got any shows that really hit for more than thirteen episodes. But then I got cast uh, in a. Broadway revival of Greece, and I was doing Greece, and somebody said, oh, they're going to do a revival of how to succeed in business yeah. without really trying with, with Matthew, Matthew Broderick, yeah. and you're perfect for the female lead. And I didn't know the show at all, and I rented the movie, and it took me like three days to watch it. I thought it was kind of boring. And Anyway, yeah. I ended up auditioning for it, and I got it, and then we started, before we went to Broadway, we did it out here in La Jolla, and there was this guy who we still know who worked for the Hollywood Reporter at the time, and he wrote this review, and most of the review was about me, which was crazy. Yeah. And that really was the thing that kind of, that was my first really big break. Yeah. Yeah. And what about you? When you, you came out here when? I did about four years in Chicago with my company, right. and things started to go well. I, I became better at acting, started getting, you know, good roles, and I had a, a, a year in 1996 where the whole year I had just the best possible shows. I, I felt like it was my dream year. Right. And I had a tooth, uh, I had a, a hole in one of my molars that I could fit a peppercorn in, which was convenient um, on long hikes. But it dawned on me, I was 26, I was like, I'm, I, I, at some point I'm going to need to like see a dentist. Uh, and I've heard about the like, SAG medical insurance and things like this. And so I had a couple little jobs out here that brought me out. It was very dubious. I mean, uh, I, I was playing a bad guy in a weird cartoon thing on Nickelodeon. The producers were, were like, uh, we can fly you out, but it's, you know, it's on Yugo Airlines, and <laughs> it's a sub-coach. Um, yeah. I landed at LAX, and, and I... Coming from Chicago, uh, just thought I would take the CTA <laughs> to Hollywood, and I ended up finding a bus. I knew that Sunset turned into C Cesar Chavez, so I took a bus to down to like right here, and then walked. Oh yeah. To, <laughs> to I know this deal. To Sunset Gower, I was like, man, I yeah. am. <laughs> Isn't it crazy the shit we did when we had no money? How yeah. we survived. And, and you love it, and, and I loved it. And I, I didn't it was love all it fantastic. at all. <laughs> I couldn't wait to make money. And when did things, when did things change for you? And did Gosh. you want them to? Because you sound like somebody who you're, you, you weren't maybe quite sure that was the goal, was to make it, or was it? Well, I wanted to, yeah, I always wanted to be, you know, to perform good writing. I mean, that's what kind of, like, I, I really thought I was going to be a, a theater guy, and I, and I became one. But it, uh, there, was, uh, there was something lacking. Like all my friends in my theater company didn't have, they sort of lost their fire and they all dropped away and got jobs and had kids. And so I, I, was, I was trying to find my place and, and I moved here and I, I was kind of lost for a couple of years. And I finally said, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I, I uh, don't understand this business. I don't like it. I quit going to like commercial auditions and instead committed those hours to carpentry work. And finally, I said, I just need to do a play. Uh, that's, that's what I do. And I 
told everybody I knew and some friends, again, casting directors, say, say are the reason we're all sitting here. I mean, these two great ladies that championed me said, hey, our friends are doing a play, and Megan was the lead in the play, and it saved my life. I mean, that... And that's that, where you met? Yeah, that's where he we was, met. Uh, yeah, it was in 2000, and it was a theater company on the east side, and um, he was sleeping on a couch in someone's basement. Quite a catch. <laughs> I'd been looking for somebody just like him. <laughs> I had it all. Get over of, here, he you homeless hunk of man, you. He had a, yeah, he had a pair of gold overalls that he, he wrote all of his notes on, like people's phone numbers and stuff, because apparently no paper. So it all wow. worked out. She said, come on over to my place and take a shower. You smell like you could use one. He didn't have a bathroom, no. He didn't have a bathroom. But, but I, I, you guys, what was the play you he did? He had a pail. Chuck Mee's uh, The Berlin Circle. What was it about? What did you play? Uh, Megan played Pamela Harriman. Uh, it's sort of a, a comedy modernization of, of Caucasian chalk circle. and um, It's like a deconstruction of mother courage, basically. I played an East German soldier who did a lot of breakdancing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Named Werner Heine. Um, and he shaved his head for it, and he had... Um, a big mustache, shades of things to you come. You can imagine. And he was about 40 pounds heavier, yeah. right? I'm yeah. 37. <laughs> so meeting Megan and miraculously having her accept me into her body um, <laughs> was... After a period of four months. That's, that's when... Four months, though, that's extreme. It was yeah. crazy. I, I had all kinds of... It really uh, was very well orchestrated. Uh, at first, we couldn't do... We couldn't even... It wasn't even a possibility. We weren't going to date. Nothing was going to happen. Eye contact then, for three weeks. Yeah. Then, then, we, then we kissed. That was, that was... He got in my car one night, and I was like, get out. And then a couple weeks later, you know, there was a little making out. And then I wouldn't even let him come over to my house. Then finally he could come over to the house, but he couldn't come in. He could just drop me off or, you know, or we could stand outside in the yard, (laughs) but he couldn't come in. Then he could come in, but only the living room. And then he had to go. Then he could come in and we would make out in the living room. sisters? What the hell is this? (laughs) I don't know. Then he could sleep on the couch, but I would sleep in the bedroom. Then he could sleep in the bed, but we couldn't have sex. Then... Finally, sex. I don't know why. I guess I'd just been burned so many times I was going to be goddamned if it was going to happen again. I was just gonna, making really, really sure. Wow. So then, How'd you feel about that, Nick? Four months of, uh, I would, guess I what door I'm behind, or whatever she was playing <laughs> yeah. there. I would have, you know, uh, I mean, I, I would have done four years. Like, I, <laughs> I, it, I knew, I knew it was... I knew it was it, and so I was like, yeah, this, ca- this couch is really, comfy. Yeah, he really down. had that confidence, and I think I was just so skeptical about everything, and I'd been hurt, and I just didn't want to take any chances. The four months paid off for Megan Mullally and Nick Offerman. They'd been married since 2003. They describe themselves as simple, boring people and say one of the reasons they've lasted is that they like to go home and read books and do jigsaw puzzles and play cards to protect themselves from the craziness of the business. To hear from another family pair, take a listen to my conversation with writer Erica Zhang and her daughter Molly Zhang Fast. What did you learn about marriage from your parents? Mom, can I answer that question honestly? Of course. Honesty is the only way. Well, I would say, have you seen Kramer versus Kramer? Mm -hmm. That was my general impression of marriage for my upbringing. But, you know, my mom had some good, useful suggestions, but ultimately I sort of had to find my own way. Though she did eventually marry a really great guy, and they've been married for 21 years. 22. Take a listen at heresthething.org.
Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash this is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guests today are actors Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally. They joined me live on stage at the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Megan Mullally had already done a couple of seasons of Will and Grace when she met Nick. Nick told me that as a cast spouse, he was what he calls the main mascot on the set of Will and & Grace, and in that role, he learned a lot. So it was the most incredible education in Wonderland to be there and watch them make yeah. every episode of that show for the last six seasons. And I, I was just happy as a clam, and I also had my wood shop. Like, I, I was living uh, the dream. And so when Parks and Rec came around, that was, that was when... Thank you. It, it, that, that took it up an unexpected 17 notches where I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> it was so crazy. We have so many parallels because we both moved to Los Angeles. Well, we both had a Chicago theater period, and then we moved to Los Angeles when we were 26. And then we both got, I got cast in Will and Grace when I was 39, and, and you got Parks and Rec when you were 39, right? Yeah. So we have so many weird parallels, and he had watched me go through all of that, so he kind of knew what to expect. Wow. You were able to kind of... Yeah, it was kind of satisfying for me to see him like encounter some of the things that I had dealt with because he thought that I was being... He thought I was being a baby and then he went through them and he was like, I don't like it. And I was like, see? (laughs) (laughs) I don't like the color they painted my dressing room. (laughs) But, but, but for example, what? Like, what's something you were able to guide him about? Well, one, the one that uh, is so valuable to me, early on in our relationship, we were in New York, and uh, Megan was going to do Letterman, and we were running 10 minutes late, you know, to get to Letterman, and I was sweating bullets, and I was new to the whole thing, and I was like, what the fuck is, what's going, how can you, we be late for Dave, what's the matter with you? And we get there. And there's some people outside that want Megan's autograph. And she stops to sign the autographs. And I'm like, like, Jesus. What are you doing? And we get inside and I said, are you crazy? We're late to Letterman. And she said, if if it wasn't for the people who want my autograph, I wouldn't be on Letterman. Aw. Aw. Now, when did you get the, I mean, I don't want to be uh, campy about it, but when did you get the big phone call when you knew you were going to go do the big show? Uh, Will That's and Will and Grace, but yeah, Will and Grace, what I'm talking about. Yeah. Not how to succeed. <laughs> how did Parks that happen? Parks and Rec got a lot more applause. Just, I'm just saying. Whatever. Stick Sorry. around. I'm used to it. <laughs> yeah. 
I love, by the way, how he didn't mention Parks and Rec. He kind of laid back. It was, then I got offered this thing called Parks and Rec. <laughs> um, are you talking about the first time Will and Grace or this upcoming Will and Grace? <laughs> well, Miss Fancy Pants, I was talking about the first round of Will and Grace. Don't you guys want Alec to come on Will and Grace this time around? One of the greatest lines... I ever yeah. had on Will and Grace, we did the live show and I had ice cream in a bag. I was going to have ice cream with you and you wouldn't let me into your apartment, hint, hint, made me wait four months. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I got the ice cream and uh, uh, I'm standing there and I say goodnight to you and Eric McCormick says, uh, your package is dripping. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what can I say? I like her. <laughs> that was like the most that. ridiculous line I've ever been I asked to say yeah. <laughs> on a television show in my entire life. But when you got the call, how did that happen? Were you, how did you get that job? Well, Jim Burroughs always called that lightning in a bottle. I had moved out there in 1985, and I had auditioned for shows every year, pilot season. And um, I usually booked a pilot. I was, I was lucky. But then I kind of got burned out. And so around... 1997, I was in the parking lot of a Bed Bath & Beyond, and I got on a payphone with my agent, and I said, Bob Gersh, I am not doing anymore. I'm not auditioning for any more sitcoms. It wasn't, it's not meant to be, obviously. And he said, yeah, okay, I think you are auditioning for sitcoms. And I said, well, I'm not. And then I had to pay my rent. So I was like, okay, I'm auditioning for sitcoms. So I auditioned for Will and Grace for the role of Grace. And they were like, no, thanks. And I went home. A couple of weeks later, I got this call. They want you to audition for Will and Grace. And I said, I already did, dumbass. And they said, no, for this other part. And I said, there's not another woman in it. And they were like, yeah, there is. And they sent me the script, and I read it. And I thought, oh, this is boring. Because it wasn't written the way that it ended up being. So I went in, and... I auditioned, and then they wanted me to come to the network, and I was the only person, and um, this is so boring, sorry. And uh, so We are I, riveted, go on. Okay, thank you. Thanks for that, I needed that little push. I was the day of the network, and I, I didn't know whether I was going to go or not, and I finally decided I would go, and I went, and I got the part, and then we went, and we had our first uh, read-through uh, informally, before the big table read, and I was like, hmm. And then... We had the big table read, and I was like, mm. and then we shot the pilot, and, well, before we shot the pilot, we were sitting there, and Don Olmeyer, who was a big uh, friend of OJ's, well, A, B, <laughs> network executive at NBC, came over to us, which is unheard of at that time for a network executive to come over to the horrible shitty actors, you know, and this was when Deborah Messing used to smoke cigarettes, and she had a cigarette, and he said, do you need a light, and she said, yes, and he pulled out this gold Cartier lighter, this really glamorous lighter, and he gave it to her, and, he's, and she lit her cigarette and went to hand it back, and he said, keep it, and we were like, oh, we're getting picked up. Oh, baby. I'm buying a Range Rover, so... <laughs> <laughs> So we did the pilot, and I don't even know why, but like it was mostly Sean Hayes. Like the audience just fucking flipped over him. And he had never, he was 27, he had never done anything, never been on a television show. And there was just an instant response. And then I thought, all right. And then about the 10th episode in, it started getting like really coming together. And I thought, oh, this could be really, really good. Well, what's interesting, when I watched the show, when I came on the show, I decided to watch a whole kind of a, a, a bin of the shows. And your show, like when I did a sitcom, you, you really don't get it until a few episodes in. Like you're kind of sh your first season is nothing at all like your character in the third. So you're really nothing. kind of sh taking more chances, taking more things on, you know, on yourself. I didn't do that high voice at the beginning because I thought they would definitely fire to me. fire you. Yeah, and so it kind of like every episode it gets a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit higher. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing, because you and I have such similarities, because I auditioned to play Kenneth on 30 Rock first. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't Perfect get the part, and I went home. Fools. And uh, then they wrote another part for me to play. Uh, they, <laughs> uh, it wasn't even it all thing. worked out. Crazily, Jack McBrayer was almost Ron Swanson. 
No. <laughs> Just kidding. But he's not a hairy beast like you and me. No, he's not. You and I talked backstage about how we're men of a certain kind of a code, a certain kind of DNA. God bless you. I'm you and hairy. I. Hard Take your shirts off, weather. you guys. <laughs> Come on. Put your money where your mouth is. They didn't pay enough per ticket for us to do that, I'm afraid. <laughs> now, how did the Parks and Rec thing happen for you? Well, Who contacts you? How does that play out? I, uh, I auditioned um, a bunch for the show The Office, um, and uh, I loved that show and the sense of humor. And, and I, I had known Rain Wilson, actually, for a long time because we always auditioned against each other for, like, the weird guy in the basement. <laughs> for real. <laughs> for real. And, and Rain was scoring these victories. He had a great part on Six Feet Under, and then, he got, um, and then he got The Office. And Megan and I loved watching The Office. And when Dwight would have a great episode, it would end. And I would say, you know, if I'm ever going to make it, it's going to be on a show like this with a part like Dwight Schrute. And so I had, I had auditioned for them. Like, there, there was a, a fondness, but I was never able to do anything on their show. A few years later, uh, one of their main writers, Mike Schur, who also played Moe's Schrute. That's, that's one of the, the, the best Easter eggs. Uh, he's so funny. So he and Greg Daniels created Parks and Rec, and Mike had remembered me. He had, he had a, written my name on a post-it and put it on his monitor. And years later, when they said, we're going to make Parks and Rec, he said, I, I want this guy on, on my post-it on the program. They originally read me for a role that was a romantic interest for Rashida, and everyone, we were all getting along great. Everyone's like, yes, this is great. And they turned it into NBC, and they literally said, you said someone like Aaron Eckhart, and you fucking hand us Nick Offerman? Wow. No, thank you. So my part, Ron Swanson was supposed to be an older guy, uh, but they bless them, uh, obstinately said, all right, we want Nick on the show. We're going to make him Leslie's boss. And it took months. NBC was like, mm, let's audition several hundred other people <laughs> just to be sure. Let's go on a world tour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Every guy I've ever met read for Ron Swanson, um, except Jack McBrayer. And so finally, uh, finally, finally, after five months, uh, they had me in one last time, uh, put me on tape, turned it in, and I, I got the job. And <laughs> Mike, Mike Schur, my boss, called me. I had inured myself. You learn early. If, if you're lucky enough to test for shows, you learn quickly how painful it is because when you test for the network, they have it figured out, so you have to negotiate beforehand so that you can't negotiate. Once they want you, you can't say, okay, I want extra money. So when you go into the audition, they put your contract in front of you, and it says this, it's like, all right, if you get this job, mm. you will get $30,000 a week for many weeks. And, you know, you've taken the bus to get there, and you're just like, yeah. oh, God, Jesus Christ, yeah. just, please. You can cut that in half if you want. Yeah. You know, I'm and, cool. And so then you're so crushed when you never get it, and so you learn to not get emotionally involved, and you're like, yeah, I know this doesn't mean anything. And I, I had done that for many years, so when, it, when I actually got the job... I just started sobbing, and I said, M Mike, please keep talking to me, but I'm going to openly sob uh, yeah. for about 15 minutes. It was, it was... That was one of the greatest days of, of my life. I mean, it really was. It was wow. such When a he got the job day. on Parks and Rec? I knew he was going to get it. It just took so damn long. <laughs> Now, we're, we're going to be out of time, but I just want to ask you, like, what's entertainment in your life now? Like, do you go to the movies? Do you watch a lot of streaming TV? Do you, what's your, because I read where you guys, an evening for you was what? A 25,000 piece puzzle and an audio book? We do. On we a table that you build? We're missing The Bachelor to be here tonight. Three hour episode. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm just saying that's a that's really true. big deal for us. I'm sorry. Big sacrifice. <laughs> 
That is that is our bag. Like that's our ultimate escape is doing puzzles while listening to audio books. Oh yeah. P.S. Anybody who doubts that we personally actually put every piece of that puzzle together, fuck you. Someone someone doubted it. That's right. Oh yeah. She's yeah, ready people, to play Karen people again. People want to see like a time lapse video of us doing it because they don't believe that we do it. Or they just want to jerk off to us mm. doing a puzzle. <laughs> Very astute. One of so those. So, other than you streaming live for people to jerk off to your puzzle making, <laughs> what is entertainment in your household? What do you like to do? Theater, film, music. What are you into? Megan's the entertainment director. Um, we uh, we watch. Well played. A, well played. We wa- We watch no, a lot I, that's of. That's my title. No, she yeah. is. Uh, Literally. Yeah. We we both love reading, but we also we watch a a, a, a great variety of independent films, um, foreign films, comedies. And we watch a lot of you know uh, cable and streaming shows, but um, we do watch the entire entire Bachelor franchise and Survivor. So yeah, I just need to throw we're that deep in. Deep into the Bachelor. You're into are you into that the Bachelor? Oh hell yeah! You are. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh. M G. Yeah. Because I watched that show once. It was very degrading. They're like begging the guy to marry them. Yeah, it's. And it's, I'm like, you know, the guy's a douche. What are you begging him to marry you for? Not all the time, but some of the time. Now, last question. <laughs> Megan's mad that I cast aspersions on her favorite show. Oh, I don't. No, I don't mind. You don't care. What's for you? Uh, is there a play in your future? You want to get back on stage anytime soon? We both love working on stage. Uh, the, I, last year I did Confederacy of Dunces in Boston, wow. and, uh, and it was a huge hit. It broke sales records for the theater. The New York uh, community informed us we were not invited uh, at the time. Why do you think that is? I, I don't know. That's uh, way above my pay grade. Um, we were hoping to do it in New York and then maybe London. Um, Beyond that, I don't know. I mean, a couple of plays just came my way that were long commitments, and I had to say no to them, and it was heartbreaking because they were super juicy. Well, set, setting aside a, uh, uh, a new play, is there a, is there a classic revival role you're dying to play? Um, I mean, I, I love a lot of different genres, but uh, I think you and I should do Ben Hex, the front page at some point. They just um, finished that in New York, yeah. yeah I mean, we're a little late to that one, my friend. It's... <laughs> Well, there's always Cleveland. Um, yeah. <laughs> I love Martin McDonough's plays. Uh, there, but, I mean, I, I could go all night. I, I love... I, w- I was in Chicago when Tracy Letts started writing plays. Uh, right. In fact, his first play, Killer Joe, I, I was one of the scenic carpenters on. And so I, I really love his work, and I admire him a lot. But um, When you do plays and you're a guy... Like, like, I love Williams, and you track that as you get older, and you go, well, I'm Chance, and I'm Stanley, and I'm Val, and I'm Brick, and there's a big leap to Shannon, and then you're Big Daddy. Maybe the doctor in the end of Streetcar who carts Blanche off to the nuthouse. B- but the, big uh, Daddy is the but leader. The, uh, but, but, but I'm not just saying this to be polite, because every actor of a certain age is, uh, has their eye on Shannon and... Uh, um, in that play, you'd be great as Shannon. You'd is that Night of the Iguana? In Iguana. You should do Iguana. You Thank should do you. Iguana. I will you'd reread be, it. You would be fantastic as Shannon. Now you, what about you on stage? Well, I Miss done... reprising my famous TV role. <laughs> Any time in your schedule? I've done, well, I've done three musicals on Broadway and one play on Broadway. And then we did something off-Broadway together. And then I got to do, in, in 2014, I did, um, I got to do... Guys and Dolls with Nathan Lane at um, Carnegie Hall. <laughs> so that doesn't get style. a lot better than that. And that role, you know, Adelaide, we're both like 25 years too old for it, but it doesn't matter because we're both the same. So I'd, I would like to do that on Broadway with, with Nathan, um, but I just did a, another play with, with him and Matthew Broderick called It's Only a Play. And then there's a new musical. You just did the only, it's only a play yeah. not too long ago. There's a couple, there are a couple of musicals like maybe, um, you know, Gypsy or um, Sweeney Todd that, that I could do. But there's a new musical by the people who did You're in Town that, I'm, that I did a, a reading of in New York that I really want to do. It's really funny and wrong. 
But I mean, doing eight shows a week on Broadway is, is kind of hard. <laughs> it is tough. I remember I would do a Hector MacArthur. I did a, a, the 20th Century with Anne Heche. And when you do two on Wednesday, that's one thing. But when you get to Saturday, and let's say you have the flu, and you're doing two shows, and it's, it's, it shows number six and seven. I remember we would do the matinee, and I would lay on my couch in my, in, on my bed in my dressing room, and I'd say, I hope that robbers come and rob the box office. <laughs> <laughs> and then come up to my room and shoot me on my bed and kill me. Because I can't go out and do this fucking play one more time. I'm so, I'm so tired, and I'm in so much pain. And you know that when you're performing, you'll do anything to get the, you know, the show must go on. So like, they come up to you and say, we're going to shoot some, uh, uh, some gasoline in your ass to get you to go. Mm-hmm. And you're going to take the shot of gasoline in the ass to get out and there. And you always have to give it your all is the thing for people like us. You know, you can't. I've, I've worked with people, who, uh, I won't name any names, but I've worked with people who will sort of, um, you know, just phone it in. I was I just tired. can't even. <laughs> God damn it. Well, cat's out of the bag. Well, let me just say that, and I'm not uh, being uh, hokey here, let me just say that whatever you do, everyone here will be watching because the two of you are so loved and admired and respected by your audience and deservedly so because you're both so unique and so original, which is, which is not easy to find in this business anymore. And, and as two of the great... Originals in show business. Thank you so much for coming and being here. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This week's show was recorded live at the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Thanks to KPCC Southern California Public Radio, Alex Cohen, John Cohn, Tony Federico, and Melissa LaCase. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The been thinking about McDonald's all day can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. The world is filled with stories. But the best ones are the made-up ones, and that's why there's This Is Americans Live, the new improvised comedy podcast from Will Ferrell's Big Money Players Network. Hi, I'm Aria Theers. And I'm Andy Harris. Join us every week as we use our trusty random sentence generator to inspire us creating a series of scenes before your very ears. What will happen? I don't know. What will we learn? Probably nothing. Will it be funny? I hope so. I need this. It's This Is Americans Live, a new comedy podcast from Will Ferrell's Big Money Players Network. Listen to This Is Americans Live on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.